Deuteronomy 16, and we are going to read verses 1 through 17. And we'll stop there in our exposition. And we'll pick back up at verse 18 next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills. So Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 17, and because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God, and this is, after all, the Lord's Day. If you are able, would you please stand? Moses writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. But all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice. In the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether Joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The grass withers. 
and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. At various times of the year, nations tend to celebrate and commemorate central values and events that together contribute to the corporate identity of that particular nation. For example, on July 4th, we celebrate our independence as a nation by commemorating Continental Congress passing the Declaration of Independence in 1776. For this reason, flags are scattered throughout towns and throughout cities and throughout states and throughout the entire country. People are often found grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. This has become a part, by the way, of July 4th celebration. People are gathered together with friends. They open up their homes. Children are found playing in yards. And, and as uh, is oftentimes the case in the South, whether you're right here in Tennessee or other portions of the South where it tends to be a bit hot, they're find in, found in swimming pools oftentimes. They're on slip and slides. And all of this is done, don't miss this, all of this is done because we value the independence we enjoy as Americans, right? That's why we do this. Year after year after year. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 through 17, God instructs Israel to observe three, and we'll say it this way, three holidays. More properly, three annual pilgrimage feasts or festivals. And these feasts serve as part of Israel's national and corporate identity as God's people. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack these three annual feasts by asking and answering three questions. And these are three questions that we oftentimes will ask of the biblical text. And so if you're taking notes, you can jot down these three questions. The first question we're going to ask and answer is very simply, what does God instruct Israel to do? And here we're just seeking to build a foundation by understanding Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 through 17 in its own canonical context, in its own redemptive context. What's going on at this time with the people of Israel? So how do we understand God's instruction for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 16? And we're going to do this by asking and answering the simple question of what? What does God instruct Israel to do? Secondly, we're going to ask and answer the question of why. Why does God instruct Israel to do this? There are a couple of reasons that surface in the text. God is not interested in mere rote. In fact, he makes that quite plain in passages throughout Isaiah. So why is it that the people of Israel, God's people, as they're entering the land of Canaan, why is it that they are to observe these three annual pilgrimage feasts? We'll find two reasons in the text. And then finally, we're going to ask and answer the question of, do you know this? How? I heard it. How? How does this text inform us as followers of Jesus Christ? Because if we're honest, right, and we're reading this text, we think, man, that's great what they did back then, but what in the world does it have to do with me today as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century right here in Powell, Tennessee? We believe here at First Baptist, because I should suggest to you, because we are Christian, we believe that all of Scripture is written by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, 
reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We believe that Deuteronomy 16 actually is written down for the church's instruction. So how? How does this text instruct us as followers of Jesus in the 21st century? So we'll conclude our time there. Now as a warning, perhaps I should have already told you this. As a warning in attempting to channel the wisdom of Pastor Phil, I will tell you up front, I didn't do this last Lord's Day. The front porch is likely going to be slightly larger than the rest of the house. What do I mean by that? When we're asking and answer the question of what, what does God instruct Israel to do? There's going to be a fair amount here. We've got to cover three feasts, three festivals, okay? I'm just justifying. So leave yourself a little bit of room so we, so we can mark through, or write through as it were, as you see fit, as we march through the answer to the question what, and then we'll get to the why and the how after we lay this foundation, okay? Let's begin by looking together at our first question, what? What does God instruct Israel to do? Let me give you a summary first, and then we'll unpack the facets or the parts of this. Here's the summary, very simple. God instructs Israel to keep three annual pilgrimage feasts, okay? So God instructs Israel in the text to keep or observe three annual pilgrimage feasts. Now, when I say pilgrimage feasts, what I am saying is these are festivals or holidays if you like, but they included meals. These are festivals for which Israel had to travel to a centralized location. So you had to pack up, you had to pack up and go as a family and oftentimes more than just your family. The Levites throughout the towns were going, the sojourners were going, the servants you had would go and you would all travel to the centralized location as we're gonna see here. Actually, in just a few moments, the centralized location was the place where the tabernacle came to rest. God says here, these are three feasts that you're not to observe in your own homes. These are three feasts that as you enter the land of Canaan, you're to observe at one centralized location as the one people of God, okay? So that's the summary of it. Let's unpack it by looking at each of these three feasts briefly. We're not gonna do justice to it, but we'll look at them briefly. First of all, we find the Passover. And you'll also notice that the Passover is spoken of really interchangeably with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is oftentimes the case in Scripture. This is the case because they were consecutive events. And as a result, they were consecutive holidays, consecutive feasts. So you would observe the Passover and then you would roll right on into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so you'll find throughout the Old Testament that oftentimes when the biblical authors refer to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they mean both that feast and the Passover. Or when they refer to the Passover, they mean both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're gonna deal with them as one feast. So the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread These two are found as one feast in verses one through eight. Look with me at verse one, if you would. Just a few details about this. Observe the month of Aviv, or Abib, if you like. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Passover 
As I mentioned earlier, you need to just note this in the text. Passover, like the other feasts mentioned in this chapter, was to be observed, verse two, notice, at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. This is the same language we found back in Deuteronomy chapter 12 concerning the place of the tabernacle and then eventually the place of the temple. But Deuteronomy actually never tells us where this is going to be because the site doesn't matter, namely the geographical location doesn't matter. What matters is that it's going to be the place where God gives his manifest presence through the tabernacle. And so you're to do this, if you're an Israelite, you're to do this by gathering together at this location. It would eventually become Jerusalem. But it wasn't always the case. So annually, Israel was to travel to observe Passover as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what these two feasts, or really this single feast perhaps, commemorated was God rescuing Israel out of Egypt as recorded, if you're taking notes, as recorded in Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. You may recall that God's final plague against the Egyptians consisted of God rescuing his people out of Egypt while casting his divine judgment on every household of the Egyptians, namely killing every firstborn son throughout all of Egypt. That is to say, if you were an Egyptian, which of course meant you were culpable for oppressing God's people Israel for a few hundred years. God was going to rescue his people Israel and did in fact rescue his people Israel. Finally, by distributing judgment throughout the land of Egypt in such a way that if you were an Egyptian, you lost to death your firstborn son, including Pharaoh. Everyone lost their firstborn son. Moreover, to spare the households of Israel from divine judgment, God instructed each individual Israelite family, Israelite household, to take a lamb, a sheep or a goat, and sacrifice it, and to place some of its blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And so, as it were, as you entered the house, the blood would cover that entry. And the idea went something like this as God unpacks this for the people of Israel throughout Exodus. As I send the destroyer to take the lives of the firstborn sons throughout Egypt, the destroyer will pass over the households that have the blood applied to them. If you've got the blood of the Passover lamb applied to your house, you will not be judged. And so Exodus chapter 12 verse 13 says this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see, here it is, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That's where the language comes from, of Passover feast. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now we're doing all of this hastily, I know, because there are so many things we could unpack and I actually was tempted to deal with each of these feasts and grant to each of them a separate sermon, but I decided, well, to keep with the flow of Deuteronomy, we're not gonna do that. But I do wanna say a couple more things about Passover and about the Feast of Unleavened Bread before we move on to the next feast, the Feast of Weeks. Additionally, Israel, as they were coming out of Egypt, they were doing so in haste. 
So God, God passed through Egypt and he killed all the firstborn sons throughout the land of Egypt with the exception of the Israelite households. And then God, as it were, is calling Israel out of the land of Egypt and they had to leave in haste. Well, because they were leaving Egypt hurriedly, there was no time if you're eating a meal to allow your bread to rise. Now, how does bread rise? Leaven, right? Or yeast. And so... God actually instructs the people of Israel, don't have any leaven, don't use any leaven. When you eat this feast and throughout these seven days, you're not gonna use leaven throughout all of your households. In fact, it's not even to be seen throughout the people of Israel during this time. Don't even allow it to show up. And this was, this was to commemorate, as it were, what took place when God called Israel out in a way that was hasty, Israel had to go and they had to go now. And so they were eating, as it were, on the road. At least that was the picture. Notice Deuteronomy 16, verses three and four. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. The bread of affliction, notice the bread of affliction. The bread of suffering, the bread of pain. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. But all the days of your life, you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. There it is. I don't want to see it. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the morning of the first day, or rather the evening of the first day, remain all night until morning. A bit of an aside here. Verse eight goes on to tell us that there's going to be a, an assembly, there should be an assembly at the conclusion of the feast. The last day was an assembly. Leviticus 23, if you want to jot down another passage that unpacks these feasts alongside of other feasts, Leviticus 23 is one of those passages. Exodus 23 is another passage. It's easy to remember, isn't it? Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, both of which actually unpack various facets of the feasts or festivals of Israel. But Leviticus 23, 7 also tells us that the first day, of unleavened bread consisted of a day of assembling, a day of rest, and a day committed to corporate worship. So it began with corporate worship, it ended with corporate worship, but there was to be no leaven throughout Israel. All commemorating this event, this redemptive event of God rescuing his people, Israel, by means of the blood of the Passover lamb, judging the Egyptian households, and hurrying his people out of Egypt and his grace, and his provision, and his kindness, okay? Well, in addition to the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, Israel was to keep the feast of weeks. Now, bear with me. We're still answering the question of what? But all of this serves as a foundation for the rest of the sermon and the ways in which the word of God describes these feasts elsewhere. This feast, the feast of weeks, is described in verses 9 through 12. Look with me at verses 9 and 10, if you would. You shall count seven weeks. By the way, that's where the name comes from. You shall count seven weeks, and therefore this feast is known as the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Now, what is a sickle? Any of you farmers know this? Background in farming? What do you use a sickle for? That's right, you're cutting the grain, you're cutting the wheat. This is the time you begin harvest, right? 
So it's, it's full grown. It's time to harvest the stuff. And so a sickle is a tool used to cut it and to begin the process of harvesting. And then eventually you would thresh it. That is divide it. Store it. Use it. And so from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain, that's when you start counting. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. This feast, by the way, is also known by the name Pentecost. It's known by the name Pentecost. That's the Greek name for it. And Pentecost just means what? You know this? 50. It means 50. That is on the 50th day. Where do we get that? Well, seven weeks. You count seven weeks from the time you begin the harvest and then 50 days later, the feast has started. And so this feast becomes known as the Feast of Pentecost. This was also, by the way, I want to mention this. Throughout the Old Testament, it, gets, it can be a bit confusing at times because it's so foreign to us. It's so foreign to us. You know, if you're an Israelite and you're reading Deuteronomy as it were, you're hearing it read, you're doing these things. You're seeing these things. You know, you're smelling these things. You're experiencing these things. But for us, it's like a distant past. It's another land. It's another culture altogether. And so it's so foreign to us. But as you begin to ferret out some of these texts and what they're communicating throughout the Old Testament, you find that oftentimes related to the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is first fruits. Now, first fruits is a name given to a couple of different things in the Old Testament, but the concept of first fruits is tied to this feast at times. Now, why would that be the case? Well, because this is a feast that commemorates harvest. And so you would bring, as it were, your first fruits, the beginning of the harvest, as an offering to the Lord of the harvest, the God who had granted you this grain. So this was a time, just a brief summary, this was a time each year during which all of Israel gathered at the central location where the tabernacle would finally rest, and they celebrated the Lord's faithful provisions as represented in the harvest because, I don't miss this, this is extremely important because it's tied to their redemption out of Egypt because there was a day. There was a day when they did not inhabit God's land. All of these feasts are tied to God's redemptive activity out of Egypt. Every one of them. There was a time when Israel served as oppressed slaves under the hands of the Egyptians. They labored not for their own land, but for the land of others, and they benefited little. But now God had brought them into the land. That's what this feast was to commemorate. Now God, according to his promise given to Abram in Genesis 12, now God had brought them out of Egypt and had settled them in his good land under his good rule. And everything they had was a gift. Everything they had had come to them by virtue of God's grace and his mercy. And so this was a reminder of God's, if we can say it this way, fruitful mercy in their lives 
during the time of harvest each year. Third, the third feast mentioned here, and then we're going to get past the what question. I know it's a lot. It's a large front porch, perhaps an exhausting front porch to walk around in. But we'll get there. In addition to the Passover and weeks, God instructs Israel to keep the Feast of Booths. That's what the English Standard Version uses. Um, You may know this feast as the Feast of Tabernacles. There are some newer English translations that opt for shelters, the Feast of Shelters. You get the idea here. Verses 13 through 15 speak about and unpack this feast. Look at verse 13 with me if you would. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days. When you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Now keep in mind, this feast also is tied to harvest in some form or fashion. It's later than that. So this is after threshing, but this is tied to the activity of God and his mercy granting the harvest to his people from the land. And again, remember, every time they were reminded that this was the activity of God's mercy in their lives, they were reminded that there was a day when they were separated from God, to use the language of Ephesians 2. They were at one point, in this sense, strangers to God's kindness in the land. But that day was no longer the day they were experiencing. Now they were celebrating God's gracious gifts through the various harvest seasons each year. So the Feast of Booths included one of these, or consisted rather, of one of these celebrations. As verse 15 indicates, the Feast of Booths lasted seven days. By the way, Israel learned how to party. They learned how to party because God instituted lengthy parties in his presence. We're going to get to some of that in a minute. Because I don't think we're always gifted in this respect. But God built this into his instruction for his people. Moreover, and we've seen this, they were actually partaking They were eating of these feasts. And so they traveled in as pilgrims and they came. They came to the centralized location and then they made sacrifices and they brought these sacrifices to the Lord, but they also partook of these sacrifices. They ate together and they drank together and they celebrated together in the presence of the Lord of the harvest. Now that instilled I would suggest to you from time to time that instilled an understanding even in the younger ones that this God that we worship is a good God who gives good gifts. That every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. as they sunk their teeth into this delightful meal. There is a time to feast in Scripture. These were some of those times. Leviticus 23, one of the passages I mentioned to you a moment ago, Leviticus 23 gives a little more detail 
concerning this feast, I just want to give you a bit of that. Deuteronomy assumes it. But in Leviticus 23, 42 to 43, we find these words, you shall dwell in booths, shelters, tabernacles, temporary tents, as it were, housing. These were temporary shelters they were to build for the seven days of the feast. So you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this meant that the feast commemorated the time during which Israel moved through the wilderness in temporary dwellings. They were to remember as they set up this shelter as a family and they lived in this shelter and, and little five-year-old Johnny or Susan, which neither one of them would have been Hebrew names, came to the parents and asked the question, why? Why are we dwelling in booths? Why are we dwelling in, in a temporary tent when our home, our permanent home is Back in, fill in the blank. The parents were given the opportunity to explain to their children there was a time when our ancestors dwelt in temporary shelters like this. And God was faithful all along the way to fulfill his promises. And what you enjoy today is the product of God's faithfulness. And the children, you see, didn't just hear that, they experienced it. They had memories that would be cultivated of sleeping in these shelters, making the pilgrimage annually. And this would inculcate and instill in these children an understanding that all of this, all of this is the result of God's goodness. Moses offers a summary in verses 16 and 17. He says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. There are, by the way, there are other feasts. There are other things. But these are the three primary annual feasts. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to, don't miss this, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So as verse 17 indicates, these annual pilgrimage feasts were opportunities to give to the Lord as an act of faith and gratitude, recognizing that everything they had received was a gift from God. In a similar way, David will pray these words in 2 Chronicles. Of your own we have given to you. That is to say, anything we bring to you, O God, already belongs to you and you've entrusted to us as stewards. That's the idea here. Now, I want to say this just by way of clarification. The males are singled out. Did you see that? Verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord. What about the females? Well, what we do know is that males were not singled out here because females were not included in the assemblies and the feasts. Well, how do we know that? The text tells us, verse 11 and verse 14, there are female servants even Female slaves, male slaves as well, but female slaves who are a part of these festivals and these feasts. 
So it's not that the females were not involved. They were involved. Perhaps, perhaps the point here is to emphasize male leadership, male headship, as representatives of the various families, clans, and tribes. The men in this case, and this is the case throughout Scripture, this is a topic for another day, isn't it? But the men in this case, of course, were representatives of all the tribes, all the clans, all the families, and the people of Israel. Well, let's spend just a moment asking and answering our second question before we get to our third. The second question, I think, will be the shortest. The third, slightly longer if we have the time. Second question, in addition to what does God instruct Israel to do, namely to observe or keep these three annual pilgrimage feasts? Why? Why should Israel keep these feasts? And there are two reasons in the text. Let me give these to you. First of all, Israel was to keep the feasts to remember together. That's why Israel was to gather together on a regular basis every year to remember together. Notice verse three, pardon. You shall eat no leavened bread with you, or rather with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may what? Remember. All the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Now glance down at verse 12. You shall what? Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now keep this in mind. We've seen this in Deuteronomy if you're with us a number of months ago and doubtless you don't remember this if you were with us a few months ago. But to jog your memory, to remember something in Deuteronomy And to remember something throughout Scripture entails more than mere mental recollection. It's more than that. So in verse 12, did you catch it? In verse 12, you shall remember, you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Remembering results in obedience. This is always the case in Scripture. You know, the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. It's not simply that Jesus wants us, as it were, to recollect that he indeed gave himself for us. It's that he wants us to be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God as we remember and to offer to him resulting obedience. So throughout Deuteronomy, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Throughout Deuteronomy, remembering is living in the present according to God's faithfulness in the past. That's what it means to remember. To remember something in Deuteronomy is to live in the present according to God's faithfulness in the past. God granted these annual pilgrimage feasts to fortify Israel's corporate memory. They were to experience this year after year after year, not so that they could say, yes, I know that God rescued our ancestors out of Egypt many, many moons ago. Not mere mental recollection, or I know that our ancestors actually lived in temporary shelters when they traveled through the wilderness. It was more than that, that corporate memory was really to cultivate in them affections. This really is the power, by the way, of liturgy. 
This is what Pastor Brett seeks to do when he constructs our liturgy every week. It's that by doing these things over and over and over again and by trusting in Jesus Christ as we gather together, our affections are subtly being altered away from folly and foolishness and idolatry to God in Christ so that we remember what God has accomplished for us on our behalf by means of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not as mere mental recollection, but as upward affections being offered to God in Christ and resulting obedience. That's the goal. We want to be transformed, and that's what's happening here in the text and that's what God means when he says you're to do this together to remember. Second purpose. Not only was Israel to keep the feasts to remember together, they were to keep the feasts to rejoice together. You find this a few times. But let's look at just one location. Verse 15. Israel is to keep the feasts to rejoice together. Verse 15, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, notice, so that you will be altogether what? Joyful. We could translate that, you will be joyful indeed. It's an emphatic particle in Hebrew. You will absolutely be joyful. That's why you're to do this. Why should you observe Passover? Why should you observe weeks? Why should you observe the shelters or the tabernacles or the booths? Because God says, I want you to be joyful in me. How about that? How about that? As a father, this is something that resonates with me. Because I know, I know that when I'm operating at my best as a dad, which is not always the case, you understand? When I'm operating at my best in the Lord as a dad, I give my children instructions for their joy. And sometimes it's so that they turn away from temporary joy, fleeting joy or happiness and turn to eternal joy in Christ. It's because the satisfaction of sin lasts for only a little while and I know that as their father and so I give them instruction and I tell them that I've given you this rule for your increased joy. In fact, I'm more committed to your joy. I know you can't understand this right now, but I'm more committed to your joy than you are. If that is true of an earthly father, how much more, church family, is it true of our heavenly father? That's why he gives his instructions. That's why explicitly he grants the feasts to Israel so that they might be altogether joyful. So, with the remaining few moments we have together, 
we've got about 55 more minutes, right? Some of you are beginning to pack now that I said that. How does this inform our faith and lives as Christians? How does this inform our faith and lives as Christians? I know there's a great deal here that we just don't understand, we haven't experienced personally, but we'll find that there is tremendous payoff as we read this text as the word of God. I'm gonna give you two ways. I've reduced them because there are many ways we could point out, but I'm gonna focus on two. First of all, we've gotta say this, it calls us to trust in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the feasts. Don't miss that. It calls us to trust today in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the feasts. The way Christians read their Old Testaments, the way we always read our Old Testament is by searching for the one to whom all of Scripture points. By searching for Christ. We are, as it were, those Greeks that came to the apostles and asked the question, sirs, we wish to see Jesus. And, of course, for good reason, because this is the way the apostles are interpreting the Old Testament. I want you to consider for just a moment how these feasts point to Jesus. We won't spend long here, but you've got to see some of this. The Bible teaches that because of sin, and you know this if you're a Christian, perhaps you don't know this this morning, and we're introducing this to you, but the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we deserve God's fierce judgment. It teaches that because of sin, we are separated from God and as a result, we are condemned and rightfully so because God is infinitely holy. However, this wrathful God is merciful and he he has sent his incarnate son, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, to die in our place and for our sins, to be buried and to rise from the dead on the third day. But we believe as Christians that this Jesus, the God-man, came and bore our sins on the cross. He died, as it were, in our place as a substitution or as a sacrifice. For this reason, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Don't miss this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, do you know what Paul did? Paul said that the Passover pointed toward or foreshadowed a better sacrifice, a better lamb, Jesus Christ. And by the way, this isn't unique to the Passover at the expense of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, in that same text, we won't get there in detail, but that same text, the Apostle Paul goes on to argue that because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, we as the church must clean ourselves out of the old leaven. And we must now put on sincerity and truth and obedience. And so he takes this feast and he applies it through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ as Christ is the fulfillment of the feast. And then he shows how Christians are to live according to the instructions of the feast. Not by baking unleavened bread, but by resisting the leaven of sin. Interesting, isn't it? Moreover, as Christ promised, as I mentioned this a moment ago, after his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. This is part of the Christian story. So Christ comes, he lives, he dies, he's, 
He's buried, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. And when he does that, he eventually sends the Holy Spirit for the church. And he does this in Acts chapter two. And this happens during the feast of what? Pentecost, the feast of weeks. By the way, Romans 8, 23, the spirit is referred to as the first fruits of our harvest. And so the feast of weeks itself pointed to something greater, namely the ascension of Jesus Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church as the first fruits and the promise and the guarantee and the pledge of what is to come when Christ finally returns. Additionally, I'll say one more thing about this. There are so many things we could say. Additionally, as Israel journeyed through the wilderness, dwelling in temporary homes, we journey, Peter uses this language, right, Tracy, wherever Tracy is. We journey as pilgrimage, pilgrims, as exiles, as sojourners through this foreign land, as it were, waiting to reach our permanent home. But as we do this, I want you to notice this promise that Jesus gives. As we are journeying through the wilderness, as it were, waiting for our final destination, Jesus promises us in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As he was with the people of Israel throughout the wilderness journey, so he is and even all the more is with us. So all of scripture, all of scripture, including these feasts, point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf and in fulfillment of God's promises. So if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises found in the Old Testament, then we plead with you to do that even this morning. Don't leave here without embracing the one about whom all of scripture is written. Deuteronomy 16 is not simply about these ancient festivals observed in the land of Canaan by this second generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 16 is ultimately about the one who would come and make good on all of God's promises that were embedded in observing these feasts. So trust in Christ this morning. And if that's where you are, if you think perhaps for the very first time you've trusted in this Savior, would you please stay afterward and have a conversation with us? If you walk out of these doors and turn left, on the right-hand side out there, there is a room called the Crossroads, and you'll see the title above the room, the Crossroads. And there'll be a pastor in there waiting to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of these feasts. Secondly, secondly, and this is the last how that we're going to offer this morning. How does this inform our faith and lives as Christians? This text exhorts us to gather regularly as a church to remember and rejoice in Christ. So in Deuteronomy 16, God is instructing the church now to gather on a regular basis to remember and rejoice in Christ. And so as we gather weekly on the Lord's day to sing and to pray and to hear God's word read and preached and to observe the Lord's supper, all of this is an application of what we find in Deuteronomy 16. Additionally, I would add, I, th I think, 
I think seasons like Advent fit into this category. This is, by the way, why so many Christians throughout church history opted for a church calendar. Now, this is, I know, a bit unique for us in the Baptist tradition, although it's not always the case. But many Christians throughout church history have opted for a kind of church calendar. And really, it's probably better to say church calendars because there are so many different versions. But what, were, what was the attempt all about? Well, the attempt was all about structuring and framing the annual calendar around the work of God in Christ. You see, early Christians recognized that the world will frame your calendar if you allow it to do so. And so many Christians seized on the opportunity to build into their weeks, their months, and even their years these seasons during which they remembered and rejoiced in the work of God in Christ and by the Spirit. I want you to consider 4th of July with me again, if you would. On the one hand, I mentioned this in the introduction, on the one hand, we observe and celebrate 4th of July because we prize our independence. All right? That's why we do it. We do it because we're thankful to be Americans. That's why I do it. But on the other hand, and this is oftentimes missed, on the other hand, many of us prize our independence because we observe 4th of July. Now that's subtle, but don't miss that. That is to say, the 4th of July isn't simply the product of independence. It's not simply the product of a group of people who value their independence. Actually, it's through observing the 4th of July each year that we learn to prize our independence all the more. I would venture to say oftentimes that a household that prizes 4th of July and in which the 4th of July becomes this annual celebratory event during which the children are engaged in engorging themselves in ice cream and hot dogs and hamburgers and slip and slides and friends and you name it. And as they talk about this and they see the flags, I would submit to you that it's more likely that those children are going to be patriotic. Because observing the 4th of July actually contributes to patriotism. Isn't that fascinating? We might call it the liturgy of July 4th. That's the power of, of liturgy. And so, what am I saying here? I'm saying that the same is true with regard to gathering as the church in Christ week after week after week, and all the more so. On the one hand, church family, we gather because we value the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. On the other hand, we gather because we desire to value the work of God in Jesus Christ on our behalf. Show me a Christian severed from the assembly, severed from the rhythm of corporate worship. And oftentimes, oftentimes, I will show you a Christian that is floundering, doubting the gospel, questioning whether or not all of this really is true. God in his kindness calls us week after week 
after week to gather in his presence to remember and rejoice. Not simply in something that we already believe, though indeed that is the case, but to remember and rejoice as it were with great aspiration and ambition to believe it all the more. Brief caution. I think I've said brief about four times now. And brief is relative, you understand. God organizes Israel's calendar in Deuteronomy 16 around himself. The organizing principle for Israel was redemption and God's provision in the land. That was the organizing principle. Something will organize your calendar. You do have an organizing principle. It's tough to unpack that and to uncover that, but it's important to know this morning Let me suggest to you that there are various ways we can frame our schedules, various ways we can frame our calendars. And just to offer a couple of potential organizing principles that are common in our broader culture, sports. Sports is an organizing principle in many calendars, right? Sports, a good thing or a bad thing, Christians? It's a good thing. Sports in themselves, right? There's no inch in the entire universe concerning which and over which Christ, who is Lord over all, doesn't cry, mine. Sports belong to him, but when they become the organizing principle, they become idolatry. They replace God's redemptive activity in Christ as the framework around which we organize our lives. You see? Give you one more. And this one's broad, but I think it's common. I find it in my own heart. Me time. Me time is an organizing principle. cooking in your kitchen now, aren't I? (laughs) I'm cooking in mine as well. Hopefully the Spirit's cooking in all of our kitchens. When this happens, when me time is the organizing principle, everything is done in order to get those moments when I get to do what I like to do because I gotta have my what? My me time. Whatever that is, right? Me time may be fishing or hunting, Some of you wives are like, amen. (laughs) Maybe some of you husbands are like, amen. I don't know. My wife loves to fish. Me time may be, you know, a a manicure, a pedicure. It may be just relaxing. It may be watching television. Maybe, Maybe it's a TV show. Maybe it's movies. I don't know. Maybe it is something else. But it's It becomes a problem when it becomes the organizing principle around which we build our calendars. 
And so we work to obtain that moment of me time and we will not give it up. Now, is watching a TV show or getting a manicure or going hunting or going fishing, are these things intrinsically evil? No. Christ cries mine over all of those activities. They're good in themselves, but they're not good as organizing principles of our calendar. Nothing wrong with any of these things, but there is something wrong when it replaces and supplants the redemptive work of God in Christ as the organizing principle around which we build our lives and our calendars. Well, we have seen that God instructed Israel to keep three annual feasts. Additionally, he instructed them to keep these feasts so that they would remember and rejoice together in his kindness. And finally, we found that the Spirit of God instructs us in this text both to trust in the fulfillment of these feasts, Jesus Christ, and to gather corporately and regularly to remember and rejoice in Christ. We could say it this way, to have as our organizing principle the gospel of Christ. Francis Havergal wrote the famous hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Do you know this? And the first verse of this hymn is an appropriate request to the Lord for us in conclusion this morning. Here's what Francis wrote. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. Would you bow with me? Father, this is our desire. As we have been privileged to look together at Deuteronomy 16, our desire is that you would take our moments, take our days, take our weeks, take our months, take our years, and organize all of our time on this earth around the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you do this for the glory of your name in Christ Would you do this for the good of your people here at First Baptist Powell and beyond? And we pray this with gratitude, thanksgiving for what you are accomplishing in and through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.